Chapter The Cover-Up The arsonist from the Iron Mountain, New Jersey fire stepped out of the limousine, thanked the driver, and slowly walked to the entrance of his upscale apartment complex in the Altoma Ottensen borough of Hamburg, Germany. Taking a deep breath, he unlocked the front door to the building and took the elevator to the top floor penthouse suite, the only apartment on the top floor. He placed his right hand on the keyless entry pad on the door and waited for his security system to verify his finger and handprints. Once inside, he slumped on his lounge chair and took another deep breath. His penthouse apartment was state-of-the-art, sporty white walls, parquet floors, and numerous other amenities centered around a fabulous terrace overlooking the River Elbe just a couple of kilometers away. His bathroom was also lavishly endowed, with its tuco sorgent submerged bathtub, expensively surrounded by darkly stained teak wood. The arsonist made sure his flamboyant bachelor lifestyle, unencumbered by the stampeding sound of little feet or the nagging whine of a spouse, exhibited his personality. This lifestyle was everything he had worked hard to achieve, but Hamburg wasn't his only place to rest. In total, he possessed 15 other places strategically scattered throughout the globe, making his whereabouts difficult to track. Reactivate security system and play voice messages. He said aloud to his voice-activated home computer system, HCV. No messages. A female HCV voice responded. The arsonist was mildly shocked that no messages were received since he'd been away for several weeks. After removing the tie from his dress shirt, he opened his laptop and accessed his private account for any new jobs. Nothing. He then checked his email account associated with the account and found no messages. Nothing. Maybe I'll take advantage of this lull and relax a while, he thought, as he yawned deeply and stretched out his arms. Closing his laptop, he told the HCV to prepare the sorgent at 32 degrees Celsius, and for the next several minutes, he thought about which one of his female friends he'd invite later for dinner and a play. The HCV unexpectedly interrupted his thoughts. The bath was prepared at the requested temperature. He glanced at his watch, noticed how the time had flown by, and realized he was just too tired to go out tonight. Tomorrow would be better. After slipping off his clothes, the arsonist slowly guided his lean, muscular body into the bathtub and released a deeply satisfied awe from his lips. However, before closing his eyes, he realized he was missing something. Never doubting his instincts, he addressed the HCV. Verify security systems. System offline, the HCV responded. What? Before the arsonist could utter another word, he was electrocuted to death by a high-voltage spike coursing through the bathwater. His body shook violently as his life quickly slipped away. Outside the apartment complex, a cyclist on his bicycle smiled as he typed on his encrypted satellite phone that the target was eliminated. A message was also sent to the other Sheol assassins at the arsonist's other known locations that the target was neutralized. The cyclist took off down the street, knowing that once the HCV could no longer perceive the arsonist's vital signs, an emergency call would be sent to the local paramedics. To complete the cleansing of this loose end, all previous transactions of the forwarded money for the arsonist's job in New Jersey were totally wiped clean. Footnote. Sheol, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible's underworld, a place of darkness to which all the dead go, a place of stillness and darkness, cut off from God. The name was chosen for the global terrorist group because it represents a group of individuals dead to the world and separated from God, residing in a state of spiritual darkness. Chapter 
North Dakota. The black sedan drove through the open gateway to the farm. Gravel gave way to the tires, making the ride bumpier than normal for the four federal agents. They sat quietly, looking at the somber faces of some of the local law enforcement through the car window as they were directed through the complex. There was an unmistakable air of shock and loss, hanging ominously over the site. Death was here. In spite of the countless times the agents had viewed death, this one threatened their impenetrable exterior with a heavy foreboding sense of finality. Death didn't just come to the cult followers of Prophet Barabbas, but also to many innocent children at the hands of their parents. Children not having a choice in following the beliefs of the cult, but unfortunately born to parents disregarding their well-being. There were but a few survivors, a few adults and some children, but the majority of the followers had taken their own lives. So, like a heavy fog, the thickness of death sickened the area, permanenting everything and everyone with its endemic harassment of permanent cessation. It was a blight on the land, nothing could ignore it. When the car finally stopped, all four agents slowly emerged and steeled their emotions for what was going to be a very long and disturbing investigation. Keiko took a deep breath as she exited the car and followed the other three agents to what looked like the main meeting building for the people who called themselves the Children of Barabbas. Once inside the building, the four agents were directed to a small office behind the altar by a local deputy. Inside the office were two more FBI agents, the local sheriff and the prophet Barabbas. Barabbas was handcuffed and sat between two FBI agents, standing on either side of him. He glanced up quickly to look at the four agents entering the room. He paused at each face as if he was looking for something, shook his head, and lowered his eyes. Keiko immediately caught the half-crazed stare and realized that any interrogation would have to cater to the man's badly disturbed psyche. The sheriff greeted the agents. There's not much room here to sit down. But anyway, what you see before you is Bartholomew Yancey, also known in these parts as the Prophet Barabbas. He will not answer to any other name. Why is he in cuffs? asked Keiko, shocking everyone in the room. The man must be in near shock to have survived such a horrible event. One of the agents leaned over to Keiko and whispered whether she had time to look at the children of Barabastasir. Blessed, mumbled Barabas. Keiko glanced at the FBI agent in charge of the operation to get his permission to proceed. Receiving a nod, she responded to the despondent prophet. Excuse me? Barabas looked up at Keiko and stared for several seconds. Not horrible. Blessed, he said with a timid voice. Keiko smiled. That's not what I meant. I meant that it's horrible you weren't able to follow the others. Everyone in the room shifted slightly, aware of how insensitive the words sounded. Some of the people who had lost their lives had relatives and family in the surrounding towns. This was evident when the sheriff looked as though he wanted to throw Keiko out of the room on her ear. However, a light seemed to shine in the prophet's eyes as Keiko's words sank in. They won't experience pain, Barabbas said, rather proudly. The sheriff shifted quickly, trying desperately to maintain his composure. Prophet Barabbas picked up on the movement and quickly pulled himself into a defensive position, bringing the hopes of beginning a dialogue with Keiko to a minimum. One of the FBI agents was quick to respond by escorting the disgruntled sheriff from the room. Keiko obtained the keys to the cuffs and removed them from the prophet's hands. She sat on the edge of the desk, crossed her legs and sighed. Sorry about that. This must be very difficult for you. Barabbas remained quiet. Keiko continued. 
Some of your followers showed a lack of faith by not following your instruction. This must weigh heavy upon you. With tears in his eyes, the prophet looked up at the FBI agent. They don't see. If they saw, then they would believe, would have listened. I tried to convince them, but they lacked faith. Wouldn't listen, he said, wiping the tears from his eyes. So, what happens now? Darkness, he mumbled. Excuse me? I didn't hear you. The prophet looked at the FBI agent again. She looked sincere, and as if she truly wanted to understand what happened. Of course, she couldn't fully grasp the severity of the situation, since she wasn't a follower. But maybe if he could make her see just a small portion, she could somehow be able to make everyone else understand. Barabbas sat upright in the chair and took a deep breath. What is your name? Keiko smiled, realizing the man was finally opening up to her. Agent Carter. Your full name, if you please. Keiko Yumeko Carter, she said, without hesitation. And what is your faith? Faith, she thought. The only faith I have is of my own ability to reason and postulate. The mind of any sentient being. She could lie, but her instinct told her that would be the wrong course to take. If you mean a religious faith, she said, I have none. But I do believe that there is good and evil in this world. I also believe there are unexplainable things man can't begin to understand. I put my faith in my ability to investigate and seek out the truth, no matter how inconceivable it may seem. Thank you for being honest, he said, smiling. Because what I'm going to tell you will seem very unexplainable to you. But if you have an open mind, then I pray you may find what I have come to understand. Keiko nodded, urging the man to continue. And he did, without hesitation. There are things, unseen things, which can guide us or hinder us in life. Forces, some may call intuition, spirits and angels and others. Luck. I tend to believe on the spiritual side of things. I've been chosen to see unseen spiritual things through dreams. In my dreams, I am instructed, guided, and warned. Recently, I've been warned of a terrible catastrophe to come to mankind. Such a horrible thing that it will shake the very foundation of the planet, the likes of which hasn't been seen since the Holocaust of World War II. But far greater than any catastrophe known to man, I've seen millions dying from a worldwide man-made plague. I saw people dying from this disease, jumping from the tops of buildings in desperation. I saw entire cities burning and people committing all types of ungodly acts towards one another in their state of hopelessness. I saw nations fall, and I saw streets red with the blood of countless masses. I saw utter destruction, but then I saw hope. I saw that the only way to survive this calamity was to release our spirits from this eventual pain, to purge this flesh and to allow our spirit beings to be reunited with our God. It was this I told everyone. It was this I charged them. But some faltered and found their faith not strong enough. Many lacked the faith to allow their children to flee this destruction with them, while others just, just. Barabbas threw his head between his hands and sobbed. I tried to convince those left behind, but they wouldn't listen. It was their choice, a choice they'll forever regret. Keiko closed her eyes to calm herself before continuing. It took all her effort to not want to grab the man and force him to understand how he had led so many to their deaths. Do you regret staying behind trying to help them? She asked. No, no, it was duty. I'm their leader, and it was my responsibility to do whatever I could to lead them. Barabbas lifted his head and looked at Keiko. It was my calling to guide them in the right direction. Keiko nodded. That's to be commended, but surely you know you're left behind with the rest of them. It was an admirable sacrifice on your part. 
The other FBI agents in the room tensed when the word admirable left Keiko's lips. She was doing a fantastic job of getting the prophet to open up, but when she praised the man for the deaths he was responsible for. Even though it was just to butter him up, their emotional detachment flinched for the briefest moment. Barabas glanced at the other agents and back at Keiko. She wasn't like the others, she had an open mind, and even though he knew she was just trying to get information from him, this was his last chance to get his message out to the public. Agent Keiko Carter, I'ma thank you for this opportunity to share with you what I was entrusted with. He said, I truly hope you have an open mind, for the day will come when you'll look back on this conversation and wonder. Keiko cocked her head and stared into the eyes of the prophet. Then it hit her. The man was not distraught over being left behind, but truly felt for his followers and the rest of mankind. He was acting as though he was almost sorry he couldn't do more, as though his time was almost. Keiko quickly turned to an agent close to her. Quick, get this man to the hospital. Now, I think he poisoned himself. Barabas lowered his head again between his legs and smiled. I try my best, he said. Keiko watched as the ambulance pulled away with sirens blaring. The paramedics tried their best to stabilize Barabas, who was already experiencing violent spasms and plummeting blood pressure from some slow-acting poison. His chances for survival didn't look good. She wanted desperately to blame someone for not noticing the prophet's condition earlier, but knew it wouldn't have made a difference. Feeling a gentle hand on her shoulder, she turned to see the sheriff who had earlier been dismissed from the interrogation. Yes, sheriff. Um, there's more people to talk to here, if you're up to it. The rest of the people were just followers who had refused to take instruction from Barabbas. Their stories were most likely no different than his, and the other agents were already on top of it. No sense being redundant in my efforts, she thought, as she shook her head. The sheriff glanced around nervously before trying again. Um, there's people, good people from town that knows a bit about these folk. Might be good to get another perspective. If you already know, up to it. Keiko closed her eyes. The last thing she needed was to chase down town folk with a predisposed sense of prejudice, lacking any objective perspective. She also noticed that the sheriff seemed rather cold to her and could still be upset over how she validated the cult leader. However, before she could verbalize her lack of interest, the sheriff continued. Pastor Everett's a good person to talk to, leads the town's local church. He knows all about this here cult. Keiko quickly assessed that a local pastor's insights on the cult and its leader would be an excellent addition to her report. It would greatly enhance her psychological profile of Prophet Barabbas who, so far, fell into the typical profile of a cult leader. A person with a bloated ego and sense of self-importance, believing he alone can see and do God's work, and an enigmatic force able to indoctrinate simplistic followers into foregoing all sense of individuality. Where exactly is he? She asked, assuming a short trip into town. He's not allowed on site, so he's outside the fence. What's he doing there? Um, praying for the survivors, something like that, I guess. Keiko motioned for the sheriff to lead the way. She walked with him past the outer gate of the farm and toward a group of locals standing nearby. Scanning each face, she couldn't tell which local was the pastor. From her experience, she expected the pastor to be wearing neatly pressed clothes, a suit, or even some kind of clergy shirt or collar. No one remotely resembled a pastor, and she started to wonder whether the sheriff had lost track of where the pastor was when her cell phone rang. When she realized it was Brooke, 
She told the sheriff she'd catch up with him and the pastor after the call. Hey Brooke, what's going on? I had some very interesting results from Detective Hunter on the wire. We gave him for chemical analysis, said Brooke. It seems as though the wire exhibits the presence of a rare corrosive agent that went overlooked could have been easily mistaken for a faulty wire. K, this fire was no accident. Keiko quickly glanced around to make sure no one was close enough to hear her. Where's the report? Keiko asked. The chemical analysis? Asked Brooke. Got copy right here in my hand. The originals with Hunter. I just wanted to update you before I send this over to Martin. Right? Keiko paused. Did you have a chance to check into those little things at the NYC branch I mentioned to you before? Brooke chuckled. Yep, and it's far more curious than a tampered wire. Seems as though there's several large companies that deposit large quantities of documents at the Iron Mountain site. A total of 15 different companies. And what's so curious about that? Asked Keiko. Well, don't get upset, but I decided to make some quick phone calls to each company, asking them simple questions about the fire. You know, simple questions of how their company was impacted by Iron Mountain's demise, what types of documents were lost, how they were going to recover their loss, and whether or not they believe they will continue to do business with the storage company. Most of the companies were well receptive. Yeah, they wondered why the FBI was so interested but figured we were just doing a thorough investigation. I was able to talk to vice presidents and presidents of companies without any problem. It basically said they never keep hard copies, microfiche, and electronic files in the same location, and that their losses were practically minimal. Brooke paused for effect before continuing. However, the only company stating they had lost all stored media because they were all stored in one location was a pharmaceutical company called Gensung. Pharmaceutical company? Asked Keiko. Yep. And isn't it curious how they were the only company that didn't practice a rather simple procedure of not putting all your eggs in one basket? Keiko noticed the sheriff talking to a local and pointing in her direction. She figured it must be the pastor. Brooke, I had to go. I want you to set up an interview with the CEO of Jensung, if possible. Keep it informal and don't question him on his company's sloppy practices. Test the waters, get info, and report back to me. Oh, and hold on to the report from Hunter. I want to tie up all these little ends before talking to Martin. He's not going to be happy, said Brooke. Keiko shrugged. That's life. Gotta go? Wait. I also got a promise for assistance from the department when I was there. All I have to do is make a call. Good call. Kay later. Bye, said Keiko. Keiko put her phone in her pocket, took a rather deep breath, and proceeded toward the two men. Pastor Everett was a tall, thin, darkly tanned man. He was wearing a baseball cap, khaki pants, and a polo shirt. And Keiko would have never known he was the pastor of a church. He didn't stand out of the crowd and seemed like any other spectator. Agent Carter? Hi, I'm Pastor James Everett. Keiko shook the pastor's hand. Agent Carter, she said, glancing at the sheriff. I guess you already know I'd like to ask you a few questions, if you don't mind. Sure, I'll do my best to answer what I can about Bart. Bart. Bartholomew Yancey. He was no prophet to me, so I'll not call him by his assumed name. Keiko nodded and turned to the sheriff. Sheriff, would you mind if the pastor and I talk in private? Without saying a word, the sheriff left to manage the ever-increasing crowd of spectators, while Keiko and Pastor Everett slowly walked the periphery of the site. At first, the conversation was rather informal. 
with Keiko asking questions about the town, the townfolk, and his church. She wanted to gauge how credible any information would be before asking the real questions. Once satisfied that he was a level-headed man, deeply rooted in his faith, and considering himself a servant to his community, the true questions began. How did you know Mr. Yancey? she asked. First realizing there was more than a mild acquaintance when the pastor addressed the cult leader earlier as Bart. Well, Bart and I grew up together. We grew up just outside town, went to the same school, and interacted quite frequently. You can basically call us friends. And in your opinion, what happened? It seems as though you two went in opposite directions, asked Keiko. The pastor paused for a moment before answering, well, Bart is a rather cerebral kind of person. He based a lot on what he understood by his five senses. I understand. It's a little difficult to explain, but he held up five fingers. There are five physical senses I'm sure you've heard of. Sight, sound, smell, touch, and taste. If you walk outside, the wind can tell you it exists through your five senses. You can see a leaf carried by it. You can hear it passing through the trees. It can carry the smell and taste of something being cooked afar off. And you can feel it on your skin. That was Bart. Keiko shook her head slightly. That explains everyone. That doesn't explain why he founded a group that had no problem taking their own lives. Everyone on the planet has five senses. Yes, I know, but where does the wind come from? Agent Carter? Keiko nearly rolled her eyes. The pastor had no idea how adept she was in the sciences. She knew that wind is driven by changes in air pressure over a specified horizontal distance from a region of relatively high air pressure to an area of low pressure, creating the wind we experience. But she decided not to answer and shrugged. She had to let him feel comfortable in where he was trying to take her. I'm pretty sure it can be answered scientifically. I don't know, Bart was a man that called himself a man of God that relied on the physical to lead him. He believed and dwelt too heavily on the physical aspects of life to answer spiritual questions and, well, got lost. Um, said Keiko, at first, not sure how to respond to that statement. How did he get lost? She asked. Pastor Everett sighed. Bart always needed an answer to everything. Well, believe that everything has an answer. He never settled on the thought that there are just some things in this world that aren't answerable. He began to look for answers to his many questions from areas outside of his original faith Christianity by first incorporating statistical probabilities of the validity of certain events in the Bible. Later, he ventured into reading the texts from other religions, and most recently, he denounced all religions, saying they were all wrong. He claimed to have discovered one valid truth all religions danced around, and that only he was bold enough to embrace. This is what he based his church on. Keiko glanced at her watch, realizing this all supported her original profile on the cult leader and didn't really bring any new insights. She had to wrap this up quickly and get back to the other agents. The conversation was interesting to understand the mind of Bartholomew Yancey, but she needed to cover other aspects of the investigation before the end of the day. She looked back at the pastor. And what did he base his religion on, she asked. Pastor Everett shook his head, as though he didn't want to mention the thought. Bart was confused, he wasn't in his right mind. Yes, I understand. Honestly, Pastor Everett, I've enjoyed this conversation and would like to speak with you again when time is permitting, but I really need to get back to. He believed in coexistence, the pastor interrupted. He believed all religions confuse this coexistence as heavenly intervention gods, angels, demons, and so on. He shook his head. I try to help him, 
but he was too far gone by opening his mind to thoughts and beliefs that confused him. Keiko withheld a smile from developing. Coexistence? She said softly. Was Prophet Barabbas another nutcase believing in alien gods? She thought. The pastor nodded. He unsuccessfully tried to convince me there was a coexistence between mankind and other beings, confused over the millennium as spiritual beings and gods. He said his discovery would enlighten all mankind and usher in a new era of understanding. Keiko pursed her lips. You know, this really isn't new enlightening information. There have been others in the past claiming the same thing. What we see here is another man convinced by his convictions so strongly, he became charismatic to others wanting so desperately to believe in something beyond themselves. Mr. Yancey, it is no different. I disagree, he said rather quickly. You see, I know everything about Bart while you're just skimming the surface. What more is there to know? He led a false religion and recently persuaded many to end their lives. And what we have to do now is pick up all the pieces of his mess, she said. Keiko stressed each word, hoping to get the pastor to make his point quickly. However, it backfired and the pastor looked at the ground, clenching his fists. You're right. There are far too many people hurt today that need help. We both have work to do here. Keiko cursed silently as the pastor extended his hand. Agent Carter, it was a pleasure talking to you under the circumstances, but I must be getting back. Gripping his hand, Keiko smiled and then quickly gave him a business card. I would very much like to continue our conversation when possible. If you happen to think of something, don't hesitate in giving me a call. I will and thank you for your time, he said, as he turned and slowly began to walk back to the sheriff. Keiko watched as he slowly walked away, realizing there was probably much more to the prophet she could have learned. Another meeting with a man would most likely bring closure to that missing information. But for now, she got what she needed. Prophet Barabbas was a dangerously deluded, charismatic cult leader who led hundreds to their deaths. After walking several feet, Pastor Everett paused, turned around, and took a deep breath before addressing Keiko one last time before leaving. Bart called this coexistence symbiotic. Keiko watched the man turn and leave. Symbiotic? She repeated, confused. The meeting took place in a medium-sized conference room, not too far from the laboratory, where several scientists once huddled over a computer, celebrating the results of the culmination of thousands of hours of hard work. A large oval oak table was the centerpiece of the room with 20 black leather executive chairs strategically placed around its perimeter. On these chairs sat the scientists from the laboratory, high Sheol officials, and a few agents. At the end of the table sat a well-built, dark Sheol official, holding the report from the scientists. He read it over a couple of times to himself, making sure he'd fully understood the implications of what the scientists reported before speaking. In the center of the table was a conference phone, and the ears listening on the other end were the true masterminds behind the project. The dark, she-all official wanted to make sure he made the right decision before revealing his thoughts to the men behind the conference phone. After nearly 10 minutes, he finally placed the report down, looked at the scientists and shook his head. Not acceptable, he said, with controlled anger. The goal has not been met. No one spoke, but they waited patiently for any comments from the men on the conference phone. True? The goal has not been met, but great advances have been made. We must acknowledge that, said a voice from the phone. Some goals are attainable while others are not. What we want may not be, however. What we fear is a viable alternative, said a second voice. 
Valid point, but the Genovirian only replicates within the infected individual, while that individual in turn isn't infectious. This makes the proliferation of the disease too slow. We need to tailor the Genovirian to be infectious, said a third voice. The fact that we developed a virion to directly alter a specific region of the human genome was no small feat that, in and of itself, is remarkable and decades ahead of its time. But to get that mechanism to be a replicating infectious agent will require at least 30 to 40 more years. Gentlemen, we have our weapon. What we must do now is figure the perfect way to deliver it. A way that will affect all continents simultaneously and efficiently, said the first voice. A long pause enveloped the room. Everyone present stared nervously at each other as they waited for the decision to be made. Agreed, said the second voice, let's focus on the delivery system for the Genovirian. Fine, so be it. Work on the delivery system, but let me tell you, if this is done wrong, we open up to the possibility of detection. Secrecy is currently on our side. What's 30 to 40 more years since we've already been inoculated? It's no longer a lifetime. I want a side option to cancel this plan if it doesn't meet optimum dispersal, shouted the third voice. Agreed, said both the first and second voices together. Fine, said the third voice. Gentlemen, you have your orders. Come up with the optimum dispersal plan. We'll be waiting to hear from you. Click. The dark, Sheol official looked at the phone to make sure the connection was severed before talking. He then glanced at each man seated around the table. You have your orders. Now get it done, he said venomously.